welcome, listeners, to another episode of the Liver Health Podcast. Now, tonight we, well, we've covered a lot of big topics in liver disease so far, and tonight we're covering a very important topic of iron deficiency. And to help talk about that, of course, got my uh, trusted co-chairs sitting next to me on the sofa here is Professor Paul Gow. Hi, Will. Evening, Paul. And opposite, across a table of delights that John's prepared, is John LaBelle. Hello. Hello, Paul. Hello, Will. Okay, John. Hey, John. Now, tonight we are talking about iron deficiency, and this is the most common nutritional deficiency worldwide. Incredibly common, Paul. You see a lot of iron deficiency amongst your patients and the people you see? Yeah, it's a common reason to come and see a gastroenterologist. It's a common... I'm sure condition diagnosed by general practitioners. And worldwide, I looked this data up today, it is incredible. So a quarter of the world is iron deficient. So, you know, one and a half to 2,000 million people are iron deficient. Very common in Australia, but worldwide, I think in countries not as affluent as Australia, much more common. Can I just take you back a bit, Paul? (laughs) (laughs) This this should be a catchphrase, but um, let's, let's take you back a bit. So... So you're assuming the audience have fully understanding about the difference between iron deficiency and anemia. Can you explain to the listener what iron deficiency is and what anemia is? Yeah, like anemia literally means lack of blood. So that means you've got not enough blood cells floating around. And iron deficiency means you're lacking iron. And they're totally separate conditions. So, you, you know, you get bitten by a shark, you bleed a lot and you'll become anemic, you'll have a lack of blood. Um, But also, importantly, iron is essential for making red blood cells, for making red cells. So iron deficiency, meaning lack of iron in your food, your nutrition, is a very, very common cause of a sort of anemia, which is iron deficiency anemia, which is probably the commonest cause of anemia in first world countries. I mean, it surprised me because, you know, iron is so important for our bodily systems, not only carrying oxygen around the blood, which I think people know that iron is important in haemoglobin, um, but a lot of, sort of our enzymic reactions, cellular growth, all of these things depend on iron. And, and I must admit, I thought we were, you know, evolved just to absorb iron constantly. I mean, I hate to use a pun, but this is a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because iron is actually required for human function, but it also can be a poison in excess. So, so actually, we will talk about it a little bit in a minute, but that's another fascinating thing about iron in the human body is that it's so tightly regulated and it has to be regulated really to a milligram level. Um, and if it goes wrong either way, you can have problems. So the mechanism of iron absorption is actually really important to our function maybe we should run through for the listeners just give them an overview of how iron is absorbed when we eat about 20 milligrams of iron a day and we absorb about 10 percent of that so i'll start and i'll try and simplify because it is amazingly complicated so iron exists in two main forms in our diet that found in meat red meat um, and that found in plants and You have your meal, the iron in food goes into your stomach. It's pushed through from there into the duodenum, which is the start of the small intestine. And that relatively small small 
part of the small bowel is where almost all of the iron absorption occurs. And there's a whole lot of chemical reactions going on to make sure iron is in the right form to be absorbed. But you're right, Will. You know, really a surprisingly small amount of the iron we eat is absorbed. It varies, but, you know, sometimes 5%, sometimes 30%. John, you're, you're and, and gesticulating. And it should be noted that, that the, the, the animal form, the heme form, is absorbed 10 times more effectively than the form from vegetables. So, so there is actually a, a natural process where, where meat products or the heme, heme iron is actually absorbed more, more effectively, preferentially. And there's a lot of regulation, so your body's doing a whole lot of things that it can alter to try and get your iron absorption into the sweet spot. As you alluded to before, Will, too little is bad for you and too much is bad for you. So we, you know, with iron, it's important for the body just to, to find the right, the, right, the right amount. And you mentioned the stomach, and I think the stomach is an important thing to mention because the stomach has acid in it. And the acidity is is quite important for iron absorption. So, so it's actually the gastrointestinal tract, you know, from from the stomach and onwards. There are key elements within various zones of the intestinal tract that favour absorption of iron. Is that right to say? Yeah, and a very common medical cause of iron deficiency is people who've had some sort of gastric surgery or stomach surgery because they've had the acid secreting part of their stomach removed and that causes iron to be absorbed even more poorly than normally and for iron deficiency to be very common do you think we should talk about the um there is a new hormone which when i went to medical school was barely known about called hepcidin and i think it's really important i think it's a really amazing thing it's a new discovery and basically this hormone hepcidin is produced by the liver and it's the it's the turn off tap for absorbing iron so basically if you have high levels of hepcidin it reduces your iron that you absorb into your body and there is no other regulatory system you, you there is no way you can excrete more iron um, in your body you can't get rid of more iron the only regulation to your iron is the tap that controls how much comes in and and, and that's key to maybe another podcast that we've done on on iron overload but I think it's it's important to understand that there's this key hormone that really blocks the channel that absorbs iron. And it goes to the point that the default setting of the body is to try and absorb iron, and the body actually has to produce a chemical to stop you absorbing it, which is that hepcidin. And, and the amount of iron in your body, the amount of iron in your diet, changes the levels of that mm. hepcidin production, and that changes how you absorb iron. Paul, can I ask you a question? Um, because I, I know you love anthropology. and um, Do I mean anthropology? Yeah, I do mean anthropology. Um, the, the understanding of if iron deficiency is so common in the world, is it a disease or is there some sort of survival advantage from having iron deficiency? Are there some diseases we're protected from? Great question. And actually, like, I, all, I disagree a little bit with what Will just said, that the body's trying really hard to absorb as much iron as it can because actually it's not it's not really that i think it's not that interested in absorbing iron like if you gave somebody 100 grams of sugar you know 98 percent of that is going to go into their blood the same with protein the same with fat the same with ethanol but you give someone 100 grams of iron and maybe 10 grams is going to get absorbed so i think the humans have evolved actually to be not 
very good iron absorbers. You know, they can upregulate it, they can downregulate it, but actually the default is we're not very good at absorbing iron. And that, there must be a reason for that. And um, also, just interestingly, what we talked about at the start of the podcast, that a quarter of the world is iron deficient. So anything that's really common, you would think there must be some, although there's a negative with being iron deficient, and we'll talk about symptoms a bit later, but there must be some positive, and there's no doubt that if you are iron deficient, that protects you from a variety of infectious diseases, and a lot of these infectious diseases aren't that relevant to modern first world countries, but you know diseases like malaria and tuberculosis um, individuals have some degree of protection from those infections if they're iron deficient, and that is because those bugs need iron from us to, you know, reproduce. So almost, it, it seems likely on an evolutionary level that the fact that iron deficiency is so common, there's this sort of trade-off. You might be a little bit more tired, but actually you're not going to die of malaria. There was a paper, I think, in Tanzania, which showed that um, the group of patients that received iron supplementation had a significantly higher rate of of malaria and were hospitalised with it. So, so there is some evidence in, in, in some clinical papers. Um, so just talking about the, the rate of iron deficiency around the world, um, we, you know, if you talk about around the world, you sometimes assume that it's talking about the developing world. But actually, even in Australia, I've got some figures here which are from the, the World Health Organisation. And iron deficiency anemia occurs in 8% of preschool children, 12% of pregnant women, and 15% of non-pregnant women. So, so this is not just a condition of the developing world. It also um, occurs in, in you know, many countries uh, with, in the developed world as well. And I want to just also go back to a point that you raised, John, that you know, we, we said that you, know, you might eat 10 milligrams or something like that of, of iron a day and you absorb a variable percent, but 10% of that. So you lose one, two milligrams a day and most of that loss is either in blood loss, so menstrual blood loss, and that's why... Um, you know, young women especially are especially prone to iron deficiency. But a lot of the iron you lose is actually the shedding of those intestinal cells. Intestinal cells don't last very long inside the intestine. They only sort of have a lifespan of two or three or four days and then they're shed. But because they're so busy absorbing iron from the food and then they get shed, you lose a lot of iron just through the shedding of those cells. And it's worth noting that there are also cells which are called macrophages, which are hungry cells that, that, that pick up dying cells and senile cells, they, they actually preserve some of the iron as well. So there's, even though there's one or two milligrams going in, maybe one or two milligrams coming out, there's about 20, 25 milligrams floating around that's being sort of recycled. Um, and there's about 1,000 milligrams in the liver and, and sort of 600 milligrams in, in, in the bone marrow. So there's, there, is, there is a lot of iron in, in stores but the, it's really tightly controlled. The amount's coming in and the amount's going out. So, Will, why don't you... Like, what are the symptoms of iron deficiency? If you're not anemic, so if you haven't... Your blood count's normal. Are there symptoms associated with lack of iron? Does it, like, does it matter if you're iron deficient? Yeah, I mean, even mild iron deficiency without anemia is said to produce some symptoms of just mild fatigue and lethargy. Um, but those sort of symptoms are magnified once you become anemic. Once you become anemic and you're not, um, you, you reduce your oxygen carrying capacity, then there are symptoms that you get. So fatigue, lethargy, poor concentration are all exceedingly common. They're not specific to iron deficiency or iron deficiency anemia. 
but if you've got those symptoms, then that's one of the things that your doctor will look for. There are other, other symptoms such as um, hair loss and effects on nails and burning mouth and various other symptoms as well, which, which can have been attributed to iron deficiency as well. Yeah, um, things like unusual symptoms like a symptom called picker, which is sort of eating crunchy foods and I think some children sort of eat dirt if they're severely iron deficiency, which is just a curiosity. Actually, my wife had that when she was pregnant. She she had picker, but she had picker for pickled um, onions. I was wondering, the garden gherkins. looks lovely. She, <laughs> no, no, she had she had picker for pickled onions and gherkins, but, but it may be the acidity improves iron absorption. But anyway, that's a different topic. Um, so, and also restless leg syndrome as well. So there's been some evidence that, that iron deficiency may contribute to restless leg syndrome. And what about John or Will? Again, no anemia, just iron deficient. Does it co- and apart from fatigue, and does it cause um, mental symptoms? Well, there is evidence in school children that there's reduced concentration, um, and and actually, you know, I think fatigability and poor sleep can can affect your mental function anyway. So so. I mean, I think there's a range of symptoms and, and patients report, probably the most common is tat, tired all the time. Um, and, and that's probably the most common symptom that I, that I see. Like iron is involved not just in making blood, but in almost all of our chemical reactions. And most importantly, it's involved in making ATP. So the, that's the chemical reaction that occurs in our mitochondria. These are tiny little organelles inside our cells that makes energy. And so if you're lacking iron, those enzymes are not going to be functioning normally. And almost certainly every cell in your body is just not going to be working quite right. So I think it's no wonder people feel just just not right. But once your body can no longer carry oxygen, so you become anemic, then your muscles can't get the essential energy that they need and, and that produces significant fatigue and decreased exercise tolerance. And so if you have these sort of symptoms which are nonspecific, and you go to your doctor, what, how do they diagnose iron deficiency, John? It's actually a simple blood test. So, so in most instances, it's a simple blood test. Like all things in medicine, there's, there's levels of complexity. But, but essentially, you can get an iron studies done on a blood test. It's a simple blood test. And, and ferritin, which is a, a protein that, that holds iron can be assessed in your blood. It's your iron stores, isn't it? Yeah, it reflects the total stores in your liver and your bone marrow and your red cells. And if that's low, you, you have iron deficiency. Um, and that can be with and without anemia. So, so eventually what happens initially is you get a um, reduction in your stores, of your total body iron stores. And then as time goes on, the red cells don't have enough iron to reproduce adequately. And then finally you get anemia. So Paul, you mentioned dietary causes of iron deficiency can you can you expand a little bit more and tell us more of the causes for um, iron deficiency there's general causes and i guess the the spread of the general causes depends on where you are in the world if you're in a country with poor food nutritional resources and malnutrition is common then nutritional deficiency will be very common in australia the commonest cause of Iron deficiency is blood loss, menstrual blood loss in menstruating women. But the causes really are inadequate dietary intake, so you're not getting enough iron, and that might be from vegetarianism or veganism. Increased iron requirements, so you're growing, you're a child, uh, you're pregnant with a child, or you're really exercising with increased muscle turnover. And iron deficiency in 
elite athletes is very complicated but also very common. And then there's blood loss. So uh, we talked about before that we're losing red cells from our gut and our skin all the time. But obviously with menstruating women, there's significantly increased blood loss. And commonly for doctors, an issue is gastrointestinal blood loss. So diagnosing that or excluding that. And that means really bleeding often from something silent in your gut, a stomach ulcer in your stomach, or a polyp, you know, a precancerous lesion in your colon. Is this a good time to bring up other symptoms that you may have that will give the doctors clues, but also should be a, you know, more of an alarm feature for you? And I think some of these symptoms are not really widely understood by, by people out there. Um, I think some of these are gastrointestinal symptoms. They're not, some of them can be quite subtle, but it could be a change in the colour of your stool, for example. It could go dark or black. Um, and if you have black stool, I mean, I mean colour of tar, then that may mean you're bleeding from the upper gastrointestinal tracts. Or if you see blood, for example, blood in the pan when you go to the toilet, or if you blood on wiping, you may be losing blood from the lower part of your gastrointestinal tract. John, do you go to the toilet in a pan? Well, we, it's <laughs> I go in a toilet. I know, but you know, it's one of those medical names that are stuck. <laughs> I and, think it's a British. I think it's a is British it a British thing? thing? Yeah, I think uh, it's a that's British why thing. so many people look at me strangely when I mention it. Um, but you know, we, we, it's, it's, maybe it's called a pan in the UK. Um, but but certainly those symptoms are, are really important symptoms. If you have those symptoms, you need to go to your doctor. And John, the the black poo, like that's strange. What does that you know? How does that occur? And what does that actually mean? What's happening? So, so in that situation, there's bleeding from the upper gastrointestinal tract, and the acidity of the stomach and the digestive juices can alter the blood, alter the blood, so that it no longer looks red, but it looks black. And I say to my patients, it's a bit like black pudding. Black pudding is is basically altered blood um, that looks very dark black, um, and and it actually. Um, iron tablets themselves can make your stool black, so that's a confusing issue. But um, the difference is, is that this condition, which is called melina, um, or black poo, is basically um, very stinky, sweet-smelling poo, um, but it's often jet black. It's like tar. So it's fair to say there's lots of different causes, but in any one individual, they're not all equally likely. So if you've got a young patient who's a vegetarian or a young female who's having regular menstrual cycles, you know, the majority of the iron deficiency is going to be related to their blood loss or diet. But if you've got an older person, postmenopausal female or an older male who's iron deficient, then your doctor is really going to need to investigate for a blood loss of the gastrointestinal tract, particularly excluding really serious conditions like bowel cancer. I mean, it does come up though, doesn't it? You probably have had similar cases where where someone's not a vegetarian, they're not vegan, they're not having heavy menstrual um, bleeding and and actually trying to work out how much iron is in their diet, whether it's adequate or not. And so I think sometimes then a dietitian is really helpful to do an analysis. Um, but can, can we talk a little bit about dietary intake of, of iron? The other thing, just for causes we haven't mentioned, which is celiac disease. So that's very common. You know, 1% of the Caucasian population has got celiac disease, and that that results in impaired iron absorption. So you might be having enough in your diet, but you're just not absorbing it properly. And that should come as no surprise, because when we check for celiac disease, one of the things we do is a gastroscopy. So we have a look down into the stomach and into the small bowel, in particular the duodenum, and we biopsy the duodenum, which... I think, Paul, you mentioned before, is where the iron absorption happens. 
And that is a bit of the bowel which is frequently affected by celiac disease. There's good blood tests as well for celiac disease. So before you even have a gastroscope, you can have a blood test to confirm it. Um, But let's go back to diet because I think it's an important issue because there'll be some people who, who, for example, don't have red meat every day or, or maybe once a week and they'll have chicken maybe twice a week and and there there are there is a trend i think in in the developed world to to be looking at diet and thinking that maybe too much red meat is maybe unhealthy and, and having a more vegetarian diet or plant-based diet may be more healthy so so what foods um would we recommend in terms of of non-meat or, or how much meat would you need to, to eat for example in a week to to stop iron deficiency well, in I mean, you're right. Meat is a great source of iron, and red meat, beef, lamb, um, but also chicken and poultry and seafood have good amounts of iron in them, and and as part of a balanced diet, are really helpful. Now, it, it's a sort of 250 gram steak, for example, might have five to ten milligrams of iron, so almost your daily requirement. Um, but that doesn't mean that should be your only source of iron. So iron's also found in lots of other plant matter, green leafy vegetables, um, nuts and seeds, um, cereals that um, can be fortified with iron. So there's lots of other plant-based um, sources of iron. Do, do you know the story about um, spinach? I, I mean, for the listeners who are in the United States, and we've got quite a few listeners now in the United States, that Popeye was a cartoon and a character initially, initially on a ma- in a magazine. Massive forearms, Popeye. Massive forearms, sailor. It was Popeye the sailor, and he used to open up a, bottle, a can of spinach and eat the spinach because of its health properties. But basically, it was all based on the iron content of spinach. But did you know, I don't know if you guys know this, but it was all based on a miscalculation by a decimal place that had been put in the wrong place by a study in the 1800s in Germany. And they'd miscalculated the amount of iron that was in it. And actually, you, you'd have to eat an enormous amount of iron, uh, sorry, spinach, to get the iron from, from you know, a piece of steak. It is an incredible story. But it, I love Popeye. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, can I also bring up the other really interesting thing is that yeah, iron's in lots of foods. We've talked about you know vegetables and plant matters as well as, as as animal products. But there are certain things you can do when you eat the iron that can also aid absorption. So like vitamin C, which is an important cofactor, and eating vitamin C along with plant-based iron can aid the absorption of plant-based iron, which is really interesting. I want to take you back, and I've just done the calculation on how much spinach you need <laughs> to get... You know, 10 to 20 milligrams of dietary iron. <coughs> Excuse me. And to eat, if you're going to rely on spinach as the source of your iron intake, you need to eat about a kilogram of spinach a day to get 10 to 20 milligrams of iron in your diet. So it's going to be pretty hard work. So that's a sack. That's a sack <laughs> of spinach. That's, that's a lot of spinach. Did yeah. Popeye? Maybe Popeye did pop those cans pretty quickly, didn't he? he <laughs> I'm not sure how much is in one can. I, spinach does wilt down quite a lot when you cook it, but I'm not sure a kilogram would go down that much. You asked me a question, Will, that I immediately forgot. No, I've forgotten. Oh no, <laughs> I, and I've got, I've got a question for you because it's relevant to a previous podcast and it's testing your memory. So, so Will just mentioned factors that it can improve iron absorption, and vitamin C was one of those. But Paul, we've talked about previously some things that can inhibit iron absorption. Do you remember the podcast we talked about? Yeah, of course I remember, John. So um, there's a lot of things in the diet 
Like iron absorption is very variable. There's a whole lot of factors influencing it, and dietary factors can influence it. So, and there are some foods that will reduce your body's ability to absorb iron. So the list is tannins, and tannin mainly with tea, but there's also tannins in coffee and alcohol. Um, turmeric. We talked about turmeric some months ago. So turmeric. Theoretically, it's associated with impaired iron absorption, but actually looking at the you literature... turmeric or turmeric? I said turmeric. Okay. Um, looking at the literature, I think that those things are they're mini, really minor things. So if you're iron deficient and you have, a couple of, you have a couple of cups of tea a day, it's almost certainly not the tea causing the problem. Now, I've had patients wonder about medication, like anti-acid medication that they're taking for ulcers. Is this a, true? Is this a real factor? And again, we talked about it before, so stomach acid production is important in iron absorption and antacid tablets reduce stomach acid production, that's how they work. But again, looking at the scientific literature, it seems like the effect is pretty small. I mean, I think it's a bit more complex than that. I think there are some studies which show that the dose of the antacid medication you have is related to the risk of iron deficiency. But of course, that's a problem because if you if you're on an antiacid medication, it may be because you've got something that could make you iron deficient, like a stomach ulcer. But but what's more compelling is there is some evidence that the duration of your therapy is also related to iron deficiency, and that is more compelling because if you have something like a stomach ulcer, it would heal with long term acid suppression. And if you're having a risk of iron deficiency despite many years of it, it implies there may be a relationship. But you're absolutely right, Paul. These are all associations. The strength of the evidence is not great. There's a good understanding why theoretically it might do it, because we know that acid secretion by the stomach is important for iron secretion, and that, for example, gastric surgery, as you mentioned earlier, may impede iron absorption. But it's quite difficult um, to do a study to prove it. The other thing I think is worthy of mentioning is other supplements. So calcium, zinc, manganese supplements all impair iron absorption. And those those supplements, I think, are much more significant than the, you know, the tea and those other things we talked about. Did you mention wine? I said wine. So wine's okay. full of tannins, yeah. yeah okay. Here's a trivial pursuit question for you, gents. Ready? So iron is in all plants, okay? Which bit of why is it in plants and which bit of the plant is it in? What's it doing there? It's in the leaves. I think it's... And it's involved in photosynthesis. Can I have another guess? Yeah. Um, I think it's involved in uh, most of the plants and it has some insecticidal, bactericidal effect, which means it defends it from infection in some way. Guys, you did better than I thought you would do, but you're both wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So it's actually... Expectations were so low. (laughs) I gave you a clue earlier that all of the cells in our body have mitochondria, and the mitochondria need iron to make ATP. Um, And all, not just human cells have mitochondria, but plant cells. So all of the plant cells, nuclei, have mitochondria, all the plant cells have mitochondria that are making ATP, and there's iron in all of the plant cells. Oh, okay. Wow. All right, Paul, sounds like we've moved on to trivia time. So I think our listeners know that Haemoglobin is a really important molecule because it carries oxygen around the body, which is obviously essential for all of our body's function. Um, But haemoglobin is not only able to 
bind to oxygen and carry it around, it can bind to another substance even more powerfully than it can bind to oxygen. Oh, I know, Paul. I know. John, uh, Paul, no, John. I'll put my hand no, up first. Paul's first. Paul. Carbon monoxide. Carbon monoxide is right. And, John, you can answer this then. In carbon monoxide poisoning, what's characteristic about those patients? Um. Well, shouldn't you expect? Well, anyway, carbon monoxide poisoning can occur when you have a gas fire that's not aerating properly, and you can get accumulation of carbon monoxide. And the patients look bright red, um, and maybe stuporous, you know, drowsy, or in a coma when they when they present. Yeah, so they look they look almost well oxygenated, like bright red, red even though yeah, they're yeah. not carrying any oxygen, because usually blood that is deoxygenated doesn't carry oxygen a bit dark red and it looks like the blood that comes out of a vein bluish bluish mm. even i'll give you another interesting fact you know how many red blood cells are made by the body per second i mean you'll never guess this you probably think it's in the billions no five five what, what, hang on what, what unit are you using billions Total, millions trillions five i reckon five per second five per second um i i, I will say five million Close, John. So 2 million red Whoa. blood cells are made per second. So incredibly fast. So red blood cells, which is where most of the iron in the body is, turn over about once every 120 days. Um, but you make them very, very quickly. How many red cells are there then in the whole body, though? Well, that's a big number, John. Are you ready? Go for it. So about 80, well, 70 to 80% of all the cells in our body are red blood cells. So that's no. about 20 trillion red blood cells in our body. Is this a size thing? Is it the red cells are small and muscle cells are big? Well, I guess so, yeah. I mean, red cells are tiny. Don't they? they have to get through tiny capillaries to get to where they need to go. So. And is this why when you told us that there are many more microorganisms in our body than cells, it's because they're smaller as well? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, okay. I'll buy that. It's still, but it's still a big number. It's a big number. It's a huge number. My bone marrow is exhausted. All that work it's doing, I didn't even know. It is busy. I mean, it shows you, you know, the enormous effort that goes into iron metabolism to, to, to not only absorb the iron, to get it where it needs to go, to package it up, to put in red blood cells. Um, and then, of course, you know, once those red cells are done, the body doesn't discard them. It dismantles them, extracts the iron back out, repackages it up and puts it in another red blood cell. Can, can we move back to more practical issues for our listeners. We've gone down a wormhole. We have. We've ended up down. It's interesting. I love it. But I think we need to, to bring ourselves back to earth and ask, what, do we do, what does a patient do or a listener do if they've got iron deficiency? How, how should they approach it? Should they be concerned about it? Paul, what's your sort of pragmatic approach to this? Well, there's two issues, really. Why are you iron deficient? So you have to fix the problem. And then you have to fix the iron deficiency. So if it is, for example, in a premenopausal woman who the iron deficiency is a combination of inadequate dietary iron and menstrual blood loss, then you need to increase their dietary iron intake and if possible, reduce the menstrual blood loss and fill the person up with iron. And with respect to filling them up with iron, they can have more dietary iron, more red meat, more plant-based products with iron, or iron tablets, or intravenous iron. They're all, again, it depends on the severity of the condition and what the patient chooses, how quickly they want to get better. And and there's 
Um, problems with sometimes with iron tablets, aren't they? They're not always well tolerated. Um, I, I tell my patients that really the side effects are proportional to the amount of elemental iron that's within the tablet. So, so you can buy over the counter preparations that are very low in elemental iron, iron um, which may not have any side effects, but actually may take a while before they replenish your iron stores. But can we talk a, bit, a little bit about some of the side effects that people may experience? Well, can I just throw it back to you? We, we can. So iron, particularly sort of reflux-type side effects and constipation from, from tablets. But one fact that you told me the other day, John, which I thought was really interesting for patients who are taking oral iron supplements, is that iron affects... as you, The supplements themselves can affect how your body absorbs iron. And there may be optimal ways to take supplements. Do you want to just... Expand on that? Yeah, this is a really interesting story and it's really come out of the knowledge of hepcidin. So hepcidin, which is this special chemical which reduces the intake of iron through the cells in the gut. Um, So if that increases, it reduces your iron absorption and actually goes up if you have an iron tablet. So if you have an iron tablet for 24 hours, the hepcidin levels increase. So you get reduced iron for the subsequent 24 hours. So there have been some studies, if people do not tolerate iron tablets through whatever reason, that if they take the iron tablets alternate daily, they they are almost getting as much iron as if they took it daily. So it's a, so it's a really useful mechanism of overcoming um, commonly experienced side effects. So it goes back, if, yeah, if patients have side effects from their iron you know, taking it every second day actually may not be a bad thing. That's right, that's right. And going back to the question of, <coughs> excuse me, how to replace someone's iron, I think that's a conversation really between you and your healthcare professional. Diet's fine, iron supplements are fine in some people. Intravenous iron is fantastic, but it's complicated and expensive. So again, it depends on, again, you know, there's an individual discussion with your healthcare professional about how quickly you want your iron stores to be replaced, how sick you are, whether you're anemic or not, whether you can tolerate oral iron replacement therapy or not. And I think it's also really important to mention um, that in some circumstances it is important that you have an investigation such as endoscopy to examine the gas stru- so the stomach and the and this large bowel because there are conditions which can cause blood loss through the gut. They could be as simple as a stomach ulcer, can sometimes be polyps in the colon but there are more serious conditions as well such as cancers which may present with iron deficiency so so if there isn't a good explanation in diet um, and intake and there isn't an alternative loss then actually you are going in the pathway towards further investigation to make sure there's not a more sinister cause and just to be black and white about it really any almost any adult male and any postmenopausal woman with iron deficiency in Australia would be offered a gastroscopy and a colonoscopy to make sure they haven't got some internal significant bleeding problem. Would be the sort of standard of care. Yeah. Uh, there are there are um, other th- things we should discuss, which we have just touched upon, and I think just just maybe um, closing on is the issue with extreme exercise. And, and the fact that exercise can result in iron deficiency and is quite commonly reported. But we're talking about quite extreme exercise. We're not talking about a walk in the park with the dog. Um, so that's not going to explain it. But if you're a marathon runner or if you're doing extreme exercise, there, there is increased iron loss probably through sweat, 
through the gut, probably through you know, urine tract as well, um, and also increased hepcidin levels, which actually reduce the amount of iron being absorbed. So, so there are numerous mechanisms in extreme exercise. So if you look at athletes, iron deficiency is quite common. So, I mean, the whole sort of iron metabolism in the body is a complex system, and I think that if there's not clear-cut causes, you definitely need to discuss with your health care professional and and they need to take a thorough history and examination and, and order appropriate blood tests. Well, could I ask you a question? So you're tired. You don't want to get a blood test done from the GP. You think maybe I've got, I don't have enough red meat, I'm iron deficient. Can you just take iron tablets? Is there any downside to that? Well, I think the, the answer is that if you are iron deficient, it's really important to make that diagnosis. So I don't think just treating tiredness in, with iron tablets in the hope that that will correct the problem is really a, a useful approach. I think we've talked about many causes of iron deficiency, but they can include really serious conditions like bowel cancer, um, like celiac disease, like ulcer disease. Um, so these things need to be diagnosed. So I, I think it is worth getting assessed. I, I think um, we might, might not talk about this too much because we are going to do another podcast which is all about the other side of the sword and it's an iron sword, and the other side of the iron sword is iron overload. And, and in fact, you know, if you have too much iron, it is possible to get iron overload, but there's actually genetic predispositions to it. But we won't, we won't go there now. But can we have a wrap-up, Paul? Can you give us a summary of iron deficiency in a nutshell? Okay, iron deficiency in a nutshell by Paul Gow. It's extremely common, a quarter of the world have got it, and probably in Australia, somewhere around one in ten people have got it. Um, very often it is pre-menopausal women and it is relatively benign and from menstrual blood loss. Uh, there are serious conditions that can cause it, such as bowel cancer, polyps, stomach ulcers, celiac disease, um, which need investigation, or theoretically may need investigation, so it does need a consultation with your healthcare provider. Um, treating iron deficiency involves treating the cause of the iron deficiency and then treating the loss of iron. We've talked about investigating the cause of the iron deficiency and also options which you can discuss with your healthcare provider about treating you know, the lack of iron in your body. I think that is an ironclad summary, Paul. Perfectly done. Love it, gentlemen. I've really enjoyed our chat this evening. You've been listening to the Liver Health Pod. Good night. Good night. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Liver Health Pod. We hope you found it interesting and entertaining. But remember, while we are doctors, we are not your doctor. You are unique and you deserve personalised medical advice, which is essential for making informed decisions about your health and well-being. Because the information presented in this podcast is general in nature, it may not be relevant to your circumstances. It is not a substitute for professional advice from your healthcare professional. The opinions expressed by the hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the organisations we work for. In fact, those organisations don't even know that we've made this podcast. So if you've enjoyed listening, don't forget to subscribe. You can also leave a review and a rating which will help others find us. Thanks for listening. Till next time.